Blessing on our time together this morning. Father, this is an important day in our nation, so we do first and foremost pray for our country. We pray, Lord, that your will would be done today as as we um, enjoy the freedom that we have in this country to vote and to speak our, our, our peace. And I just pray, Lord, that, that you would have your will and way, and whether we're being judged, I'm sure we are, or whether you would like to see a revival in this land, whatever, we just pray your will would be done and that we would do our part to see that uh, Washington, Lord, could turn back to you. And we know, of course, that is only accomplished as as men and women individually are born again. So we do pray for our leaders that before it's too late, many, many of them would come to know you, Lord. Even if it takes a crisis in this land, I pray that you can wake us up and, and return us to the principles upon which we were founded. And Lord, now we ask that you would be with us as we open up, well, the word, as we talk about your word and as we talk about um, the first original Passover and how you redeemed your people out of their bondage to sin and slavery there in Egypt. And, of course, we know Egypt symbolizes this world. I pray that your Holy Spirit would have his will and way in every heart here and that you would speak to us as only you can and convict us and edify us and do your work in every heart here. And we will be careful to give you, Jesus, the praise for anything and everything that is accomplished. For we do pray in your name. This is Lesson 147 in our Life of Christ study, and I have entitled it, The Lord's Supper in the Light, or in the View of the Passover, the Jewish Passover, Part (laughs) 1. In order to better appreciate the Lord's Supper, which is what we come to next in our chronological study of the Passion Week, we will come next to the Lord instituting his supper, the Lord's Supper, also known as communion or the Eucharist. Some people call it the Eucharist, which comes from the Greek word for thanks. Did you know that? If you were Greek and you wanted to say thank you, you would say, Echaristo. Aren't you glad you're not Greek? <laughs> you have to get, get, get it down here, guttural, Echaristo. But Eucharist comes from that word. So the Eucharist really means the giving of thanks. But in order to better understand what we commonly call the Lord's Supper, It really, really should be viewed in light of the framework from which Jesus instituted it, which was, of course, the Jewish Passover, to get a richer, deeper understanding of the sin-substitutionary death of the true Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to look through Old Testament lenses, particularly lenses that focus on the many Old Testament prophetic types of Christ, particularly the account of the original Passover and the significance of God's command to slay a Passover lamb on the night of Israel's exodus from the land of Egypt. So we are going to be engaging in a two-part study entitled The Lord's Supper in Light of the Passover. And in this first lesson this morning, we are going to discuss Number one, now this part you can look at in your notes. This is our outline for today. We're going to be discussing, first of all, the original Passover, which some call the Egyptian Passover, the the first one, the original one. We're going to be discussing that as recorded in Exodus chapters 1 to 12. I won't read all those chapters because it would take too long, but that's where you could find the original Passover described for us by Moses. Then we are going to be looking at the permanent Passover memorial 
which was commanded by God for his people to celebrate in Exodus chapter 13, verses 1 to 10. And third, we will be looking at the Passion Week Passover as the Lord and his men celebrated it. And we have actually been talking about that. So some of that will be review as we discuss how the Lord and his men celebrated the Passover on the night before his crucifixion. And then, Lord willing, in next week's lesson, we're going to experience together a Passover Seder. Have any of you ever participated? Seder means order. It's the order of the Passover that the Jews celebrate to this day. Anybody ever? Oh, that's quite a few of you. Good. Then you know something about it. It's... um, It's something that we're going to celebrate together, and I think that those of you who have not been through one of these before, you're going to be absolutely amazed at how much of what the Jews do as they celebrate their Passover points to Jesus Christ. It's sad that they don't see it, you know, unless they're a completed Jew and they've been born again, but so much of what they do says Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ all over it. So it's going to be an eye-opener for a lot of you. And I do, invite, I do uh, encourage you to bring other friends that um, don't necessarily come to this Bible study. Tell them that we're having something special. We'll be tasting different things such as the choroseth paste and um, um, bitter herbs. And yes, I'm going to make everybody taste the bitter herbs dipped in vinegar <laughs> until tears come down your eyes. <laughs> Because that's what the Jews are supposed to do to remind them of their toil in Egypt. And we're going to be eating um, matzah crackers and and drinking Hawaiian punch. No, we're not going to have wine. We're going to have Hawaiian punch. And anyway, it's going to be a good time. So, and, And your young people, they can sit still. They're welcome to come because at the Passover, they also have their families to teach their families about the Passover. And then after we do that, we're going to return real quickly next week to the Lord's last night before his crucifixion as he instituted the Lord's Supper. And by the time we do that, basically we have already taught the Lord's Supper, so that won't take very long, okay? But we will discuss the Lord's Supper. Um, All right, now I'm going to begin today's lesson. When God told a Gentile named Abram, whose name was changed to Abraham, Catherine, did you say a Gentile? Yes, I did. Did you know? I mean, it's always funny to me that Abraham, the father of the Jews, was originally a Gentile. Where was he from? Well, the area that today is like where Iran and Iraq meet, um, Ur of the Chaldees. So he was a Gentile. His father did not worship the true and living God. And so when God told this Gentile, Abram, to leave pagan Ur of the Chaldees, It is amazing, absolutely amazing, that Abram obeyed. Even though God didn't tell him where he was going. He says, just pick up, pack, and leave. (laughs) Where am I going? Well, you'll find out as you step, you know, in faith, one step at a time. It was, of course, eventually to the land of Canaan. Leaving a life of comfort and ease and advanced civilization there in Ur of the Chaldees, advanced for that day, God called Abram to live a semi-nomadic type of life. So that tents became his primary shelter from nature's elements. But Abram, in faith, trusted God for his future stability and an earthly home for his descendants. 
in Canaan eventually. He also trusted God for a celestial home one day. But, you know, time passed. I'm not going to develop Abram. Time passed, and God uh, brought a great drought and a subsequent famine to the land of Canaan, which drove Jacob, a grandson of Abraham, out of the land of Canaan to obtain the promise of food offered to him by a son he thought long dead. Who was that son? Joseph. But by way of God's providential use of the Genesis 50-20 principle, isn't it amazing how many times that comes into play as we discuss our lesson on the life of Christ? But, um, you know, what men intended for evil in that Joseph's brothers intended evil for Joseph because they were envious of him and they were going to murder him, but they wound up selling him to passing Midianites. God used that evil for good because eventually Joseph became second only to Pharaoh over as ruler over the land of Egypt. And so he promised his family, you know the story, um, that they could come to Egypt and receive bread. So Jacob and his 11 other sons and their families, the seed of Abraham, headed south where? To Egypt. Headed south to Egypt. Because of Pharaoh's love for Joseph, the Egyptians welcomed the Hebrew family. They were treated as honored guests and given the rich land of Goshen to live in. Goshen was there on the, um, along the delta of the Nile River. It was rich, fertile land, and there they prospered and their crops grew. And the Hebrew family initially of 70 people were secure and they multiplied and they prospered in their peaceful pastoral life. Their children, as I said, they were prolific. Their children began to multiply and they grew, they grew strong and golden in the warm sun. No cold night desert wind howled through the solid walls of their adobe homes in Egypt as they had in their tents when they lived in Canaan. And their Egyptian neighbors were not only friendly to them, but they also accepted them as their equals. So the Hebrew family grew, and they enjoyed a very advanced culture that not only produced literature and music and uh, magnificent architecture, as we all know. Has anybody been to Egypt and seen the pyramids and the Great Pyramid and the Sphinx? Anyone? I know Sylvia has and several of Yes. Jeanette. I have been there with Pastor Bob, and it is absolutely magnificent. They still don't understand how they built those great, I mean, they were very advanced. So life was good. Life was good for the Hebrews, and the descendants of Abraham prospered. But there was a problem. They overstayed their welcome. Can people do that? Yes, I have a daughter and son-in-law. I know. It really got to me this week. Oh, it got to me this week. You know, every time I walk in that door, when my house is, you know, I leave it clean and then I come home and toys everywhere and the kitchen sink is full of dishes. It gets to me after a while. So they've overstayed their welcome. I hope they don't stay as long as the Hebrews stayed in Egypt because that was 400 years. But, the, you know, the famine in Canaan was long over after 400 years. And they stayed put in Egypt because they had it really good there. In fact, um, 
it became a problem. It became a problem that they stayed so long. It became a problem in the eyes of God. You see, the children of, of uh, Israel, the children of Abraham, had become too comfortable. They had become too content. And they had become too secure in Egypt. Hmm. Can we do that? Mm-hmm. This world has a lot to offer, and we can become too comfortable here and not even look ahead to the next world. You know, if you get a, a sentence of death, you know, you've only got so much to live. What is our first instinct? I don't want to leave. I'm comfortable here. They got too content in Egypt, and they had made Egypt their home and seemed to forget that they were not in the land God had promised to their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. However, the worst problem was that many of Abraham's descendants were forgetting God himself. Uh-oh, sound like America? Forgetting God himself. So it was time for God to intervene in the situation, to gain back the attention of his chosen people. He put into power a pharaoh over Egypt who knew not Joseph and held no special regard at all for the Hebrew people. In fact, he saw their growth as a potential threat to his own position and to his nation. So as a preventative measure, he made them his slaves. He had such power that he could do that. They still lived in Goshen, but their rights were removed. And their property was removed. They were still allowed to live in Goshen, but they could not own the land anymore. In other words, the government took over. And they became the property of Egypt and Pharaoh. And they were used to serve Pharaoh with harsh, back-breaking labor, building his treasure cities and uh, his, his monuments to his own name without pay or without dignity. Life became cheap. If a Hebrew dropped from exhaustion, and now you're all picturing Cecil B. DeMille's movie, right? The Ten Commandments. <laughs> and you can see those evil, cruel taskmasters beating the Hebrews. And if one fell over and died from exhaustion, they immediately whipped into place another Hebrew to take his workplace in the line. Yet even under this pitiful situation, God saw to it that his children continued to multiply. So the worried and angry Pharaoh issued a decree to murder every Hebrew male baby born so that eventually the Hebrew people would die out. They would perish. Finally, it took them a long time 400 years, which, by the way, had been prophesied by God in, all the way back in Genesis 15. In the days of Abraham, God had told Abraham, your descendants are going to go down to Egypt, and they're going to stay there for 400 years. Sure enough, came to pass. And then he said, and I will deliver them from their bondage. That was a prediction of the Exodus 400 years before it occurred. It was actually a prediction of the Passover that we're going to be talking about. So finally, the Jewish people, in their great misery, remembered the God of their fathers. Sometimes it takes crises, doesn't it, to gain our attention. And they cried out to him in their affliction to deliver them from not only the evil Pharaoh, but better 
deliver us, God, not just from Pharaoh, but deliver us from Egypt itself. They wanted to be now delivered from Egypt. Now, what could God have done to alleviate the suffering of his people? Well, he could, of course, have slayed, slayed, slain, slain, slew. (laughs) He could have slew (laughs) the evil Pharaoh, right? And put a good Pharaoh, you know, he could have brought to power a new Pharaoh who could restore favor and freedom and liberties and safety to the Hebrews. But that would not have been enough to truly deliver his people from Egypt, right? He needed to get them out of Egypt, out of the world. Why? Because the sons and daughters of Abraham needed to forsake Egypt so that they would again remember and serve and worship him, the true and living God. Old things, old interests, And old affections needed to pass away, and all things needed to become new. Israel needed a new beginning, a new birth, just as all people need a new birth, a spiritual birth, or they cannot see the promised land of the kingdom of God. So to assist him in carrying out his plan to redeem his people from Egypt, God chose a man who was really part of both worlds. You know, Moses was almost as much an Egyptian as he was a Hebrew. Who does that make you think of? The other deliverer, the greater deliverer, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was also of both worlds, right? You know, man, fully man, fully God. Moses was the physical deliverer of his people, um, and he was Egyptian, you could say, and Hebrew. Because uh, even though he had God, uh, righteous Abraham's blood flowing through his veins, he was born a Hebrew, yet where was he raised? He was raised in uh, Pharaoh's palace with Pharaoh's daughter taking the part of his mother. He was one of those babies who had been delivered, divinely spared from Pharaoh's edict to murder all the Jewish babies born. And you know that story, how he was put in a little ark, you know, and uh, floated down the Nile River, and Pharaoh's daughter saw him and took him into her own home. He was delivered miraculously by divine providence, just as Jesus was delivered as a small child from the edict to, to massacre all the little Bethlehemite boys. And, you know, Herod the, Herod the Great issued that. There's a lot of similarities, right, between Moses and, and Jesus Christ. But God saw to it, even though Moses was given all the best as far as worldly wisdom is concerned there in Pharaoh's palace, uh, yet God saw to it that he was actually nurtured and taught by his own mother, Jochebed. Where did Moses learn all the things that later came into play? You know, he wrote Genesis, Exodus, (laughs) Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch. Where did he learn about the Abrahamic covenant? Where did he learn about Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac? From his mother, Jochebed. That's why it's so critical, you mothers and grandmothers, to teach those young ones when they're little. They soak it up like a sponge. I can't believe my little three-year-old grandson has already learned more books of the Bible, you know. (laughs) They can memorize, like it takes us, you know, work at it, work at it. They can just soak it up and spit it out so fast. It's amazing. But he learned at his mother's feet, and he retained that. So it's important to, you know, 
impress truth in them when they're young. And then hopefully when they're old, they won't forget what they learned. It took uh, Moses a while. I'll talk about that in a minute, how old he was when he finally got busy doing the Lord's work. He was 80. <laughs> Can you believe? It's about time he got you know, serious about the Lord's work, 80 years old. But he did leave, live to be 120. So, When Moses was finally summoned by God at the burning bush to deliver Israel from her bondage, he had been away from Egypt, do you know how many years? 40 years on the backside of the desert. So he was 80. He spent 40 years in Egypt, then 40 years in the desert. Why did he have to flee to the desert? He, he killed an Egyptian. He fled there because he was under penalty of death for having killed an Egyptian who he saw beating one of his Hebrew brothers. And Moses, of course, uh, lashed out in anger. You can see Charlton Heston, right? <laughs> Lashing out in anger. And he killed the Egyptian for smiting one of his Hebrew brothers. And he, when he did that, right then and there, Moses willingly made his choice decide with which people, the Egyptians or the Hebrews, God's people, the Hebrews. Um, and then when God finally determined that Moses was ready at 80 for his important assignment, he was sent from the desert to stand before the successor to Pharaoh. It wasn't the same Pharaoh who had sought for his life when he had slain that Egyptian, but he now was told to stand before the Pharaoh uh, and speak forth those words, Let my people go. Pharaoh, as we know, refused. And God proceeded to demonstrate his mighty power by bringing down judgment after judgment upon the land uh, and the false gods of the Egyptians. Let me back up for just a minute and say something that I discovered this week when I was reading a book on Exodus that I had never seen before and thought about before. How many of you know what the burning bush symbolized? As God spoke out of the burning bush to Moses. You know, gave his name, I am that I am, and all that. What would you think the burning bush is a picture of? Well, nobody yesterday got it either, but, uh, and, I, and I never did, but when I read this, it makes sense. He spoke out of the burning bush. The burning bush is a picture of Israel. You see, through the centuries... Israel would experience the hot flames of, of satanic fury. Has she not? Have you ever seen a nation burn as much as Israel? It doesn't even make sense, does it, why the whole world seems against that one little country the size of New Jersey? Why is there so much anti-Semitism? It doesn't make logical sense. They've been a great people as far as uh, adding to our to our uh, technology and science and everything. They're smart people. They're a democracy today. I mean, why does the world hate the Jewish people? It's because Satan. It's satanic fury. It's anti-Semitism, and it all stems from Satan. She has burned, burned, burned through the centuries, but she has never been consumed, has she? She's burned, but she has never been consumed because God has divinely spared her. God spoke to the world from the midst of Israel. Where do we get this book? 
from the Jewish people, right? So that makes sense to me. All right, back to our story. Uh, Through Moses and his brother Aaron, God turned Egypt's waters into blood to demonstrate his power over the Nile River. Why did God do that? Because the Egyptians actually worshipped the Nile River as a god, the god that sustained life. So God was showing that he has power over all their gods. That's why he also darkened the sky, because they worship the sun god, Ra, R-A. So he showed his superiority over their Egyptian god, Ra. He made a pestilence of frogs. Why? Because the Egyptians, can you imagine, worshiping a slimy green or brown toad frog or something like that, bullfrog or... Ribbit, ribbit. But they worshiped the frogs because the frogs helped control insects. He poured out plague after plague upon the Egyptians in his attempt to free his people. But as we know, Pharaoh continued to harden his heart. God used hail and he used locusts to destroy their Egyptians' crops. And he used disease to destroy all their cattle. The Egyptians themselves were afflicted with painful boils on their bodies. Reminds me of the tribulation judgments, doesn't it? There's a lot of similarities. God trying to get, you know, the Egyptians' attention, just like in the days of the tribulation. He's going to be trying to get the world's attention through all these plagues. And then he covered the, the Egyptian land, not Goshen, but the rest of Egypt, with an eerie darkness, a thick darkness settled over the land. Yet, in all these plagues which threatened Egypt's prosperity and even her continued existence, the Hebrews themselves were supernaturally spared. You'd think that would get the Egyptians' attention, right? But, in spite, and that reminds me of the 144,000 in the tribulation who will be sealed by God and spared all the judgments. But in spite of the tremendous witness of power displayed by God through his servant Moses, the proud and stubborn Pharaoh continued to harden his heart. So that finally the cup of iniquity was full and God said to Pharaoh, Israel is my son. Let my son go that he may serve me. And if thou refuse, I will slay thy son, thy firstborn son. He was going to show his superiority even over Pharaoh because he would not only slay all the firstborns in Egypt and even the Israelites if they didn't do what he said to do, but he would slay even Pharaoh's firstborn son because, again, he was showing he was more powerful than Pharaoh because the Egyptians worshipped Pharaoh as a god. Now, although deliverance for the Hebrews was at, uh, was at hand, they were about to exit Egypt. Yet, they were not automatically free from suffering this last plague, God's last plague. In his final judgment of Egypt, on Egypt, God, we find, tempered his anger with mercy because he offered a way of escape from his wrath. He hadn't done that with the other plagues, but in the last plague, he offers mercy. There's a way out from suffering this death of all the firstborns. His perfect provision was made 
in the substitution of a life for a life. In order to avoid God's final judgment, a spotless lamb, less than a year old, prime of life, selected on the 10th of Nisan, was to be slain by each family, um, kept for three and a half days and then slain by each family on the 14th of Nisan, and its blood was to be applied by hyssop, sprinkled on the, the lintel of the door, their doors to their homes, and then on the two side posts of the doors to their home, you know, one this way, one two this way, sort of forming a cross. And uh, then they were to stay inside of their home all night. After they had applied the blood to the door, I'm looking at a door, that's why I always point there. <laughs> you guys aren't looking at the door, so you don't know what I'm doing to you. Um, then they were to stay in the house all night, and they weren't to come out until when? Until morning. Couldn't come out until morning. If the family obeyed these instructions, the firstborns of both Israelites and Egyptians would be spared. And I say, I believe with all my heart, the Egyptians would also be redeemed from, from the angel of death. Their firstborns would be redeemed from the angel of death if they obeyed God. All right, this is all a picture of our redemption, and it's for Jew and Gentile, right? The night of Israel's redemption in Egypt, as you can imagine, was a very scary night. A night spent behind the sanctuary of blood-sprinkled doors, but it was a night of deep horror and grief for anyone and everyone who foolishly disregarded God's command to come under the divinely provided umbrella of protection of the slain blood of the lamb. I think about how easy it is to just obey God. You know, you'll be covered. His, his judgment falls, you know, his rain comes down, storms come down on the just and the unjust. But he has provided an umbrella of protection from his wrath, hasn't he? And it's the blood of the lamb. It, makes me, it made me think of, you know, Noah in the safety of the ark. As he listened, can't you imagine the family hearing all the screams of people as the water's rising and they're starting to drown and they're screaming, open up, open up and let us in. And what an awful time that must have been for Noah and his family. But they were safe inside. Just like all those Jewish people and even Egyptian people could have been safe and secure behind the blood-covered doors of their homes that night as they heard people screaming as their firstborn children were all dying. Just like in the, in the wilderness, you know, when they were all bitten by serpents, what was the only thing they had to do to be spared, to be saved? So simple. Just look upon that uh, serpent that was lifted up on the brazen pole. A picture of Christ who became sin for us lifted up on the cross. All they had to do was look upon it in faith and they'd be healed from the bite of the serpent. It's so simple. Why do people fight it? I don't understand that. But um, <clears throat> if, if they did what God told them to do, as the angel of death passed through the land, um, he would spare the firstborns in those homes where the blood of the lamb had been put on the door. Primarily, they were homes inhabited by Egyptians where the firstborns were killed, but Gentiles could have, could have been spared if they did believe God's word. And I got to thinking... After 400 years of influence by the Hebrews, I imagine there had to be some Egyptians who had come to faith in the true God, don't you think? 
There were godly Hebrews such as Jochebed and Moses' father and his sister Miriam and Aaron, and I'm sure there were many other godly Hebrews who were a witness to the Egyptians. And then, too, if they hadn't come to faith in God over 400 years, they had those first nine plagues. And if I was an Egyptian <laughs> and I was suffering from all those plagues, frogs and locusts and boils on my body and darkness, and seeing the Jews spared from all that, I think it might get my attention when he said there's this last plague, it's going to take your firstborn child. I think I might have decided I'm going to go with their God instead of the frog gods. <laughs> so I would think that some Egyptians, I don't know how many, God knows, but it's all a picture of the salvation that's provided for Jew and Gentile. So I do believe Egyptians were also spared. It was the blood of the Passover lamb that protected the children of, of Abraham and any obedient Egyptians from the wrath of Almighty God. Well, after they applied the blood on the door, then the family was to roast the lamb. Not stew it, not fry it, not any other way. They had to roast the lamb. I told you before, they would put the body of the lamb on two skewers of pomegranate so that the skewers actually formed a cross in the body of the lamb. Couldn't break any of the bones of the lamb. And then they were to eat the entire animal um, on the evening of the day of its death. This gave them nourishment for the long and difficult and dangerous journey ahead of them out of Egypt. So it was a time of new birth, a time of new beginnings, which is why the Passover redemption from Egypt changed Israel's religious calendar. Although the Jews, as we've discussed before, celebrate their secular new year in the fall of the year, the month of Tishri, which is comparable to our September, um, that's when they have their new year, and it's called Rosh Hashanah, that's their secular new year, yet uh, their religious calendar begins in what month? They are comparable to our late March, early April, their month is called Nisan, the car name. Um, Nisan, and this was because God commanded them. You can read this, Exodus 12, 2. God commanded them to count the month of their deliverance from Egypt as the first month of their year. Nisan represents a new beginning. By God's divine design, Nisan was also the month Christ died to redeem Israel and all other peoples, Egyptians, Gentiles, both physically and spiritually. Israel, of course, still corporately as a nation um, does not celebrate the perfect and complete Passover deliverance. They celebrate Passover, as we're going to see, but they don't celebrate the complete Passover deliverance, which occurred where? On Calvary. They yet reject Jesus Christ as the, the true Lamb of God. Did you know that the Passover is the oldest continuously observed holiday in the human race. Passover has been celebrated now for 3,500 years. And that's the longest any people have ever celebrated anything. Think about it. What holiday could you think of that would go further than that? Certainly not the 4th of July. <laughs> Certainly not Christmas or even Resurrection Day or Thanksgiving. Passover is the oldest holiday in the human race. It's the first of the seven God-given feasts, Jewish feasts. 
And as we just discussed, Passover has an historical setting. When you study the Passover in the Bible, you find that it includes two differing and yet similar celebrations. There was the original Passover, which is known as the Egyptian Passover, that one terrifying night in Egypt that we just discussed. And then ever since that first Passover, there has been the memorial Passover. Now, the original Passover was a once-for-all event. That's important. Once, one time. And it was actually, and most people don't think of it this way, but it was. That original Passover was a sin offering, sacrifice. It says in Exodus 12, 27, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord. When they slayed those slain, the slew those lambs, it was a sacrifice to the Lord. God said, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. The angel of death would not touch the firstborns, right? And aren't we all firstborns when we're physically born? We're all firstborns. Um, do, you know, do you know what the, the Passover was, that first Passover? Do you know what it really was? It was the gospel before the gospel. The Passover was the gospel before the gospel. It was a picture way long ago, 3,500 years ago, of the coming redemption of all firstborns who apply the blood of Christ, our Passover lamb, in faith to the doorposts of our hearts. The chief purpose of the Passover in Egypt was to prophesy of the coming Christ. That's what it was all about. That's why, you know, you, why did God make us do that? That seems kind of strange. Why didn't he tell us to do something different? Why do we have to go out and pick a little lamb and then look at it for three and a half days and make sure it's spotless and then slay it and put the blood on Why do we have to do all that? It's a picture of the coming of his son, the true lamb of God. You know when in the fullness of time Christ finally did come to planet Earth? He was said to be by the Old Testament's last prophet, who was the old te- last Old Testament prophet, John the Baptist. Yes, in the Bible it's Malachi, but John the Baptist was the last Old Testament prophet. And when he looked at Christ, he introduced him as the Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb of God, which cometh to take away the sins of the world. Now, as we have been seeing in our very extended study of the life of Christ, Jesus, the Lamb of God, was examined for the whole three and a half years of his public ministry, and he was found to be spotless. Even his enemies couldn't find anything wrong with him except to falsely accuse him. And we know he was killed on the very day of the Passover, the 14th of Nisan. You think all that's just coinky-dink? <laughs> It was orchestrated from eternity past. And he gave up his spirit, as we know, at the exact time that all the Passover lambs in Jerusalem were being slain. And like the original Passover, the Egyptian Passover, his sacrifice was a once-for-all event. He was the once-for-all sin offering. But the Passover not only had a sacrifice, not only did they have to go and slay the lamb, right? It was not only involved a sacrifice, but the Passover involved a meal 
After they put the blood of the sacrificed lamb on the door, they came in the house and they ate a meal, right? That's what they were instructed to do. The meal became the basis for what is known as the peace offering. You see, once all the firstborns were protected from sure death by their faith in the blood of the lamb, they were at peace with God, right? Once we firstborns have applied the blood of the lamb, the true lamb, to the doorposts of our hearts, we have made our peace with God, and then we can enjoy our fellowship with him and with one another. And this is what was pictured by the Passover meal, which they ate together. The meal is a picture of our fellowship with the Lord once we have been spared from ever experiencing the second death. So first the sin offering, the blood applied, and then the peace offering, the meal together, the supper together, the fellowship together. Well, then there is also the memorial Passover. When God spoke to Israel through Moses and Aaron, he said, And this day shall be to you a memorial. This first Passover, the Egyptian Passover, I want you to remember forever. Ye shall keep it a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. Ye shall keep it a feast and an ordinance forever, he says. We're going to even celebrate the Passover in the millennial kingdom. So it's good that we learn what we're going to be doing next week. <laughs> in obedience to God, the original Passover has been perpetuated through the annual Jewish Passover celebration. God wanted his redemption of Israel to be stamped indelibly on the minds and hearts of future generations. Because, have you found this to be true? It only takes like a generation. Sometimes it only takes a decade for people to forget. You talk to young people that are about 11 or 12 years old. What happened on 9-11? They don't need, I mean, they don't even understand the significance of it anymore. Or we could go way back to the assassination of J.F. Kennedy. You know, I remember that vividly, where I was, etc. But it doesn't take long for people to forget some of the lessons that we learn in history. Young people, you know, 9-11, eh. That's ancient history almost to them. So God understood that the best way for his people to remember what he did for them in redeeming them from Egypt was uh, through an annual reenactment of that first Passover night by way of a memorial celebration that appealed to the physical senses. Now, as a former second grade teacher, I know that the best way to teach children and even adults is through visual aids and object lessons. The Lord knew that. He's the greatest teacher there has ever been. And he understands that we learn best that way. That's why the Lord spoke using parables so often. And so as, you, as we and the Jews, next week we and, and the Jews every year, celebrate the Passover, they are taught about things through their five senses. We're going to smell things next week. We're going to see things. We're going to touch things. We're going to hear things. And we're going to taste. <laughs> we're going to taste things. And those are all tools to teach us spiritual truths. The Lord began his object lesson to Israel with the Passover lamb. Yearly. Now, I'm not talking about the original Passover, but yearly. Now, for the, ne you know, the next 
Well, actually, after the original Passover, they used a lamb only for the next 1,500 years because ever since the temple has been destroyed, there are no sacrifices, so there's no more lamb. When the Jews get together today for the Passover, they don't eat a lamb. The matzah has taken the place of the lamb. I'll get to that later. But for the next 1,500 years, they were to select a lamb on the 10th of Nisan. Each Jewish family was to... um, keep that fan, that little lamb. It had to be uh, under a year of age, which is comparable to the prime of life. We know Jesus was in the prime of his life at 33 years of age. The lamb was to be then for the next three and a half days scrutinized to make sure that it was healthy and perfect in every way. And as we've talked about, we know that such a frisky and cute little creature as a lamb living in a Jewish family would quickly win the affection of the entire household, right? Particularly the children. So it was, it was difficult. When the day of the slaying of that lamb approached, it would be hard to look into that little lamb's big, innocent brown eyes, knowing that soon a knife would take its life's blood from it. But God did that on purpose, intentionally. It was a sad situation because God's holiness, he was teaching, demands that he judge sin. And the price is very costly. Also, remember we talked about this, that lambs were not to have any bones of their bodies broken. We are told three times in the New Testament that the Roman soldiers did not break the legs of Jesus. Why do you think we're given that little added fact? Because, again, it's fulfilling the picture in every little detail of the original Passover lamb. He didn't have to have his legs broken because he had already died when they came to do so. God commanded that the Israelites eat their Passover lambs with bitter herbs. We will be probably... Um, eating some bitter, well, we will be. I'm not, I'm still trying to decide on what bitter herb to use. Hmm. Horseradish root? <laughs> Probably parsley, because I'll just be kind to y'all. But, uh, and this was, the bitter herb was to symbolize the hardships their forefathers had endured under the cruelty of Pharaoh's taskmasters. Then they were also to be a reminder of the bitter truth that the firstborns lived only because the innocent Passover lambs had to die. That's a bitter truth. The bitter herbs were dipped into that corrosive, pasty mixture that we've discussed. It consisted of a combination of vinegar, figs, almonds, dates, spices, and sometimes apple. Now, I don't have a recipe for corrosive paste. If somebody wants to look one up online and make us a big batch, it's fine with me. Just call me and let me know. But otherwise, I'm bringing a big jar of Jiffy peanut butter. This mixture, this mixture was beaten to the consistency of clay or mortar. Why do you think that was? Right, to remind them of the mortar and hard toil of the Israelites in making bricks for the Egyptian pharaoh. Who built those pyramids? Hebrew slaves. Now, interestingly, when I was in Egypt, I had a female tour guide who told us 
that those pyramids were built by the Hebrews in their spare time willingly. They wanted to move those 70-ton, you know, just because they, they like the Egyptians so much, we'll build you these pyramids. I couldn't believe my ears. You know? but anyway, that's their take on it. No, we didn't, we didn't make the Hebrews our slaves. Baloney, the Bible says you did. <laughs> the next symbol in God's object lesson was the unleavened bread. So their memorial Passover consisted for years of three basic items, the lamb, the bitter herbs, and the unleavened bread. Now, things have changed. We'll discuss that. But that's how they did it for 1,500 years up to the time of Christ. The children of Israel ate the Passover lamb with bitter herbs and with unleavened bread. They were instructed to completely clean their homes, you know, before the Passover of all leaven. Somebody asked me yesterday, well, then how did they have their next loaf of sourdough bread if they got rid of all the starter? And I said, that's a good question. <laughs> Maybe they t- everybody took their starter and put it together in the temple. I don't know. But they were to clean their houses of all leaven. And they were not to eat anything with leaven in it for a full seven days after the Passover. That's the feast of what? Unleavened bread. Why? Because leaven in the Bible is a picture of the influence of evil, of the old life. The Hebrew word for leaven is chometz. And it means bitter or sour. The influence of evil makes people bitter and sour, doesn't it? You meet evil people, they're bitter and they're sour. You know what else they are? Puffed up. What does leaven do to bread? Puffs it up. So it gives it more volume, but not more weight. Hmm, that's an interesting description of pride. Pride causes people to become puffed up in their imaginations, thinking more highly of themselves than they should. They're just full of air. <laughs> By the sourdough, how many of you make sourdough bread? Now, this is where I think of Judy. Judy Loving makes the best bread. Mm. Sourdough bread is interesting. That was the way the sourdough bread, the use of the starter, um, was what was used to make bread by Jewish housewives. And I had never thought of this either, but each new generation of bread was connected by the common yeast spores to the previous loaves, right? Every loaf of bread that you make is a continuation of the first one because you all you start with the starter and then you take out of you know each batch a little bit of starter to make the next loaves and a little bit to make the next loaf so that all the loaves are connected. You know what that symbolically pictures? How all human beings are linked to the sin nature of Adam. Interesting. So think of that next time you make your sourdough bread. <laughs> now the Hebrew word for unleavened, no leaven is, you all know this word, matzo, I heard it, matzo, I told you you knew that, you all know that word, matzo, okay, that's the word for unleavened, and it means sweet, without sourness, the unleavened bread pictures the sweet wholesomeness of life without sin, and it foreshadowed the sinless life of the Messiah who would come to fulfill all righteousness and give his life as the perfect Passover lamb. After the temple was destroyed and the sacrifices ceased in 70 AD and the Jews were scattered to the four corners of the world, the matzo, the unleavened bread, you know, the flat cracker, which actually tastes pretty good. I like matzos. Put a little peanut butter on them. 
<laughs> Put a little cream cheese, they're pretty good. Um, but the, the matzo took on added significance, and we will see this. It's fascinating as we celebrate the Passover next week. The rabbis actually have decreed that the matzo is to replace the lamb in the memorial Passover celebration. Now, those who celebrated the Passover meal reclined at a low 18-inch table in the Babylonian custom of free men. We have discussed that, how they sat there. They actually reclined at the table with their legs out behind them, and they were at this low 18-inch table. And if you were to ask the host of every Passover Seder, which the host is usually the father or the grandfather or the, you know, the head man of the family, if you were to ask the host why they recline on pillows or couches, and now today when the Jews get together, they sit at a table, but they always have a pillow there to remind them that, that they recline, that they can recline, and I'll discuss that next week. But the, the host would say, you say, why do you recline when you eat your Passover meal? He would say this, quote, Back in Egypt, our forefathers were slaves, and slaves were not permitted to recline and eat leisurely. They had to eat erect, standing up, and they had to eat rapidly so that they could continue to be about their master's business. Only free men could recline on the floor, leaning on pillows or lying on couches. At the Passover, therefore, we Jews, by reclining, are reminded that we have been redeemed out of the slave out of slavery by the mighty hand of God. End of quote. So now we know why the Lord and his men at the Passover were reclining, and this is what made it possible for John on the Lord's right to lean in on the Lord's breast and ask the question about the betrayer's identity. You know, Lord, who is it? Well, I'm now going to talk about the Passion Week Passover, which we have been discussing for weeks. But uh, we know that when Jesus and his 12 disciples went to the upper room, the Passover had been prepared by Peter and John. When they all got in there, what was the first thing Jesus said to his men? He said, with desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Luke 22:15. See, Jesus not only looked back to the time of the ancient physical deliverance of Israel from her slavery in Egypt, but in this statement he's saying he's looking ahead to a far more important time of spiritual deliverance. It's like our Lord's Supper. You know, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, not only do we look back to what was done, on Calvary when the Lord died for us. But what do we do? We look ahead as well to the time when we will again drink of the cup and eat, you know, with him in the kingdom. Same thing with the, the Passover. They, the Lord was looking behind and they were looking behind at what happened back in Egypt when they were physically delivered from Egypt. But he's looking also ahead to, his, to the next day when he would not be eating the Passover lamb with his men, he would be the Passover lamb. Now, at the time of Christ, the, the Passover feast celebration began with the reciting of a blessing, which is called the Kaddush in Hebrew. And that was pronounced by the host over the first cup of wine. 
the Passover celebrants then drank and sipped from four cups. We're going every one of you next week is gonna have four little cups in front of you, little Dixie cups, <laughs> with four little amounts of Hawaiian punch because they cannot trust you with wine. And <laughs> we'll all leave here inebriated. But actually, their wine was diluted with five parts water, so nobody left the Passover, you know, inebriated. But uh, they would drink from the first cup of wine. Wine in the Bible symbolizes what? Joy. The Passover wine was and is still required to be red. So we're going to have red Hawaiian punch. And it was required to be warm. So you're not going to have ice cubes in your little Dixie cups. It's going to be warm. They would actually heat the water that they mixed with the wine. Why do you think they wanted red, warm wine? What is that picturing? Blood, exactly, the blood, the symbol of the blood of the true Passover lamb, whose death has become a great source of joy for all those who have been redeemed. Four times during the course of the evening, each person partakes of a cup of the water-diluted wine. And this is to remind them of the four I wills that God spoke to his people back in Exodus chapter 6. The first cup reminds them of God's promise, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Well, then following the opening blessing and the drinking of that first cup of wine comes the first ceremonial washing of the hands. They... um, the host, it's at, at this point in the Passover memorial celebration, that the host of the meal would get up from his reclining position and take off his garment and, uh, well, he wouldn't take off his garment. Not in the, the Lord did, but the normal host wouldn't do that. But he would go over and get a water basin, and he would take the water basin to each participant of the Passover celebration, and they would wash their hands. You're going to do that next week. We're going to have little bowls of water. You're going to dip your fingertips, and you're going to have a napkin to dry it off. But what was different in the Lord's last Passover meal with his disciples, that he, as the host, at this point in the Passover celebration, got up, yes, like he was supposed to do. He took off his garment, which probably gained their attention, and then wrapped himself up in a towel, went over to get the water basin. But instead of taking it to each one of the disciples for them to wash their hands, what did he do that shocked them? He got down on his knees and he washed not their hands, he washed their feet. No wonder Peter was shocked and said, Lord, what are you doing here? But this was that part in the celebration that they would do the washing. Well, after the washing of the hands and the feet in the Lord's case came the first dipping of the food. The bitter herbs were dipped into salt water or vinegar and passed to each member seated around the table. The Talmud says this, quote, just as lettuce, now lettuce is one other bitter herb. I don't think lettuce is bitter, but apparently the Jews did. Just as lettuce at first tastes sweet and then bitter, so did the Egyptians treat our ancestors in Egypt. At first, they settled them in the best part of the land, right? The Egyptians were nice to the Hebrews when they first came over, put them in Goshen, wonderful land. It was sweet at first. Sin is at first sweet, isn't it? Hmm. Appeals to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. At first it seems sweet. But later, uh, the Egyptians, you know, that sweetness turned to bitterness, didn't it? And that's exactly what happens with sin. So that's the first dipping. 
And then the next step in the ritual involved the youngest male. Now, this would be the youngest boy at the table. You know, there's families there. The youngest male child who can read would ask three questions in a row, which would be answered by the host, the father or the grandfather. This was done in obedience to God's commandment in Exodus to teach the story of Israel's redemption to thy son. You know, it's important that we pass along truths to our children. So that's what they do. And here's the questions asked by the youngest male who can read. Number one, why is this night different from all other nights? On all other nights, we eat leavened or unleavened bread. But on this night only, we eat unleavened bread. Why? First question. Then the second question. On all other nights, we eat all kinds of herbs. You know, bitter and, and, and not bitter. Why on this night only do we eat bitter herbs and why do we dip them twice? Third question. On all other nights, we eat meat. can be roasted, it can be stewed, or it can be boiled. But on this night, we only eat roasted meat. Why? And then to answer these questions, the host would give a synopsis of Israel's national history beginning, as we did this morning, with the call of Abram out of the idolatry of Ur of the Chaldees, and he would end with Israel's deliverance from slavery in Egypt and God giving Israel the law at Mount Sinai. Now, going to our Lord's last celebration of the Passover with his men the night before he was crucified, it was at this point in their celebration when the youngest child would normally ask those questions that the youngest disciple, John, leaned in on the Lord's breast and asked him a question. So the host had to answer the question. Lord, who is it? The one to whom I give the song. At that precise moment. See how much it comes alive when you understand what they were doing as they're celebrating the Passover? Well, then after answering the questions, the host explained the next step was the symbolic meaning of the lamb, the bitter herbs, and the unleavened bread. He would explain why they use those things, okay? And then they would sing the first part of the Hallel, which is Psalms 113 and 114. After they sang, then they would drink from the second cup of warm wine, which was drunk in remembrance of God's second promise in Exodus 6, where he said, I will rid you out of Egypt's bondage. Then everyone's hands were washed for a second time. They were really fanatic about clean hands, weren't they? <laughs> so they'd wash their hands a second time. This second time, it's an act of respect for the unleavened bread that they are about to eat, the matzah. They wash their hands before they touch the unleavened bread. Interesting. And then the host would take a piece of the unleavened loaves and he would pronounce a blessing over it. And his blessing consisted of two parts. First of all, he offered a prayer of thanksgiving to him who brings forth bread from the earth, which is interesting. Who is the true bread that came from heaven? The true manna, Jesus Christ. Here the blessing over the unleavened bread, picturing Christ uh, without sin, the bread of life. The blessing begins by um, to, to saying thanks to him who brings forth bread from the earth. The bread that came from heaven is also going to be the bread that comes out from the earth. What is that a picture of? The resurrection. That's the first part of that blessing. The second part is a prayer of thanksgiving for the commandment to eat, to receive 
to internalize that unleavened bread. And then the host would give a piece of this broken unleavened bread along with a piece of the lamb that had been cut into pieces and some bitter herbs dipped into the sweet sarosith paste to each person around each celebrant of the Passover meal. So what he does is he takes a piece of the matzah, puts a little piece of the, This is, you know, at the time of Christ. It's no longer the lamb today, but up to the time of Christ. Piece of matzah, put a little piece of lamb on top of it, a little bit of bitter herb on top of that, and then dip the whole thing in the peanut butter. <laughs> and that was called the what, ladies? Yes. Who said that? You get a gold star. The sop. Belva. Proud of you. Somebody over here said it, too. Good job. The sop. Um, and it was given to every participant at the Passover meal, but would begin with the guest of honor seated at the Lord's left, which was Judas. This is probably what also confused John in that he didn't really understand, you know, was it Judas? He said the one to give the sop, you know, but everybody received the sop, too. Jesus made 12 little sop sandwiches, I call them, sop sandwiches. But Judas received it first, but that's what was supposed to happen, the guest of honor on the left. Well, when the sop had been distributed to each participant of the Passover celebration, the Paschal meal itself was then eat, eaten. You know, they had, they had the meal, the whole lamb and all their whatever else they ate, vegetables, etc. They'd eat the whole meal. And then after they ate their meal, their hands were washed again. Now, here's a good thing to teach your kids. Wash your hands before the meal, during the meal, and after the meal. <laughs> right. But that's what the Jews did. They washed their hands after the meal, and then they drank from the third cup of red, warm wine. <clears throat> and that reminded them of God's promise, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, Exodus 6.6. 6. Wow. God said that all the way back in Exodus, the night of the Passover. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. How appropriate. How did God redeem his people, you and I as his people, with outstretched arms on an old rugged cross? This third cup, reminding them of their redemption through his outstretched arms, is the cup Jesus then connected with the Lord's Supper when he said, he took up the cup and said, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. Do you understand the significance of that? If you don't, go home and look it over and study it. Connect that verse, which is in 1 Corinthians 11.25. It's also in Matthew 26.25 or 27, something like that. Connect that with what God said. I will redeem you. That was Jehovah God speaking to Israel. I will redeem you with outstretched arms. Jesus saying, this is the cup of my blood. What is Jesus saying there? I am that I am. I am the same one that promised you I would redeem you with outstretched arms. Don't ever let anybody convince you that Jesus Christ is not God. He is. Well, then when Jesus took up the unleavened bread over which he then said, Take ye eat, this is my body. When he did that, the disciples were shocked. They expected that third cup, 
But they did not expect him to again take up the unleavened bread and, and say, take, eat, because you know why? After they ate the Paschal meal, no more food was supposed to be eaten. That was it. So when he again took up a piece of matzah and said, eat it, they were shocked. There were two things he did in this, um, his last Passover with his men that shocked him. Number one, instead of washing their hands, he washed their feet. Number two, at the end of their meal, he again took up unleavened bread and said, take, eat. That was not normal. That was shocking. They, they, they weren't shocked <clears throat> about him saying, take, eat, this is my body. Because they had learned that lesson back in his Bread of Life sermon, they knew he wasn't telling them, you know, and giving them a teaching about cannibalism. <laughs> they knew here he's speaking symbolically. But it was very, very unusual for the Paschal host to give those seated around the Passover table any additional food to eat. Thank you for the Lamb of God, the uh, true Passover Lamb, the better sacrifice who came to seek and to save that which was lost and to take away the sins of the world. Thank you that he was and is a lamb without blemish and without spot and that when we apply his slain blood to the door of our hearts by acknowledging his death on our behalf, we are set free from all fear of the angel of death. We will never experience the second death eternal separation from you thank you father for the jewish passover and all that it symbolizes but thank you even more heavenly father for the passover deliverance which occurred on calvary we do pray in jesus name amen